Welcome to Pullback. I'm Kyla Hewson. I'm here with Kristen Pugh, and this is an encore episode. What? Hooray! Hooray! It's one of our favorite episodes. We like to re-release some of our older stuff now that we have a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I really liked this conversation with Robbie. It's the first time we ever had him on as a guest. So if you're a new listener and you've heard Robbie before and you're like, who is this person? (laughs) This is the episode (laughs) that you would want to listen to. (laughs) Yeah, we should probably just like introduce him better every time, but fuck it. We're just going to call him Robbie. He's going to be on the episode. (laughs) And if you don't listen to this one right now, you'll never know who he is. (laughs) just going to be a running joke that you're not in on. I don't know. I wasn't expecting this conversation to go the way that it did. And it made me feel both better and worse about the climate crisis. What about you? Yeah. I mean, this episode, when I thought about what we were going to talk about, I thought it was going to be mostly a debate about whether personal behavior changes or collective changes are better. And Robbie, I thought, really smartly flipped it on its head and, and said, well, actually, we need both. And here are the tactics we can use for personal behavior changes to make it more effective. Like, let's not shame people out of eating meat. Let's do this instead, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I really liked this episode. I have listened to it a couple of times since, and I still think it's one of the really good ways to get introduced to our show, even, honestly. So if you're new here or if you're a regular listener and you just want to brush up on all of the amazing ways that we can make change through collective action, this is the episode for you, which is everybody. Everybody should listen. (laughs) And with that, fair listener, please enjoy this episode. Robert is a progressive activist and an organizer based out of Edmonton, Alberta, and one of the groups that he works with is Extinction Rebellion. Hi, everyone. So, uh, Robert, could you tell us maybe a little bit about how you got involved with activism? No, wait, but first, can I still call you Robbie? Because it's been 10 years since we've spoken to each other. How's it going, man? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Robbie works fine, too. Um, do, not have to, do not have to call me Robert. Um, yeah, so... I've always been sort of like environmentally minded, you know, growing up with David Attenborough's Planet Earth and David Suzuki's The Nature of Things. Uh, I still remember the first time that I watched Al Gore's The Inconvenient Truth. You know, all of this stuff is sort of canon. But what really spurred me into activism was the IPCC report that came out last year um, that basically said we have 12 years to go carbon neutral to lock in 1.5 degree warming. And the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for people that haven't heard of it. Ah, yes. Um, Like me. I've heard of it, but thank you for clarifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if uh, if I ever use an acronym that is is maybe not as common knowledge as I think it is, please jump in. Um, (laughs) And yeah, a couple months after that, they actually released their models. And six out of the 13 models showed that we'd already passed the 1.5 degree tipping point, that we needed to be carbon neutral yesterday in order to lock in 1.5 degrees. So looking at where we are now, which is like just barely below one degree of warming, and we've had record fires in Australia and Alberta, um, dramatically more powerful hurricane seasons, dramatic changes in weather all around the world. And it's like that is going to go from the anomalous weird years to the everyday average experience for people all around the world. Uh, And I knew that 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 (laughs) that is not acceptable. Um, We really need to start doing something different. And that really spurred me to move from just being the, a quiet environmentalist who, you know, uses energy efficient light bulbs and turns off the lights um, to someone that has blocked critical infrastructure, um, being specifically called out uh, by staff of the Alberta government 
and can claim a little bit of credit for having one of the most draconian anti-protest laws in the country passed because of something that I did. So, What did you do? Tell us about that. I don't think I know <laughs> any of this. Oh, um, there was a whole bunch of us who blocked rails outside of Edmonton last week as part of Wet, Sweat and Strong and Shut Down Canada. I should, sorry, I should mention as well, because we're probably not releasing this episode until April, that this is happening in February. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it was on, uh, yeah, that rail blockade on February 19th in Edmonton. So I did see that, but you said that they passed a anti-protest law in the last week? Yeah, so uh, Bill 1 creates a $10,000 fine plus up to six months in jail for every day that you are blockading, and critical infrastructure was defined as basically everything with the ability for the government to determine critical infrastructure at its discretion at any time. Um, so functionally, they are criminalizing all protests in Alberta. Uh, and that was a direct response to our rail blockade on February 19th. So, And and I think the idea is that the law is almost definitely unconstitutional, but that it'll just take so long for it to go through the courts that it could have a big impact beforehand anyway. Yeah. Is that what you're hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually being interviewed just the other day um, about it, and uh, that was basically my thought, was that I was like, hey, if you've got $10,000 and can spare six months of your life in jail, uh, we'll definitely be looking for someone to challenge that. I know that there's going to be a lot of criminal lawyers who would absolutely love to uh, just take the province to task on this. So <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that I want to be the one to, to test the case, but uh, we'll find yeah. someone. So last week when we asked you to record with us and you said, yeah, I probably won't be in jail. That was like a legit thing. <laughs> yeah, I was not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's bonkers. Um, I didn't know about that. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I'm horrified right now. She this actually looks really shocked upsetting. for those of you who will not be seeing the video recording because this is a podcast. <laughs> we, we truly understand the audio medium. <laughs> But yeah, so I think that that kind of activism is very important in Alberta, especially, you know, we're not necessarily going to be getting any legislative wins with a government as hostile as Jason Kenney's. Um, but you're changing the way that people think about the province and what's possible. So so I don't know, in light of like, the recent shift to petro fascism in Alberta, uh, this might be a bit of a weird <laughs> question. But I, I'm just curious if you have like, Something that pops out as the strangest thing that's happened to you since you started getting involved in activism? I think actually still one of the most surreal moments was when we blocked the Walterdale Bridge back in October as part it's of... a nice um, bridge. Yeah, bridge out fall rebellion. And, uh, you know, we had the normal screamy, yelly, angry white dudes who, you know, we kind of expected. But at one point during that protest, we I had someone came out of their car and like walked from halfway down the hill. For those of you not familiar with Edmonton's geography, uh, the Walterdale Bridge is at sort of like the bottom of the river valley, and the two on-ramps for the bridge come from the very top of the river valley. Um, so it's a perfect place to blockade because the cars are trapped there once they're on that on-ramp. Um, but yeah, so this woman comes down from like halfway up the hill. Um, she's clearly like an accountant or a lawyer or, you know, some very like high-flying white-collar professional. Uh, comes down from her car, walks up and down the line of our blockade, stops in the middle where I am and looks me dead in the eyes and just says, just like I thought, a bunch of fucking losers and college dropouts. And she just had like such anger in her voice that I actually thought that she was going to spit on me. But she didn't. She just like called me a college dropout, turned 180 degree on her heels and just like walked back up to her car. And <laughs> in a sense, I guess I am a college dropout. I, I dropped out of a PhD and got a master's. 
Um, but it was still just like the most surreal thing I've encountered as a protester. For reference for listeners, out of the three of us, I am the only dropout. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's like less less weird and less related to Alberta specifically is just the way that it changes your feelings around the spaces that you're in. Like I can't cross the Walterdale Bridge now um, without just like having that sort of like visceral reaction of, oh, yeah, we I stood on this bridge for like two hours blocking traffic and now I'm just like driving across it. Uh, it's a very different feeling. And I actually really like that about protest and the way that we can help people change their relationships with public spaces. Yeah, definitely. That's a really interesting perspective on it, for sure. I'm curious, just like, um, turning towards sort of the the theme of the discussion on the climate crisis. Um, is there a particular moment or event that sticks out in your mind where you had a sort of a realization that, wow, we're really fucked? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, with work uh, two summers ago, I participated in the Ride to Conquer Cancer. But the Ride to Conquer Cancer occurred during um, the like brutal wildfires that were happening out in BC. And so Calgary, where the ride was taking place, was just completely inundated with smog. Um, to the point that after about three hours into the ride, the air quality around Calgary was so bad um, that EMS pulled out. It was actually against their workplace safety to have like ambulances on standby outdoors um, because the air was so bad. And so the ride had to be canceled because we didn't have medical support and EMS um, on standby. And so we're sitting there and it's like, okay, so I've raised like, you know, $3,000 uh, for cancer research in the province. Can I redirect those funds uh, towards like climate <laughs> justice and, and transition? Because yeah, it, it was literally just like this very visceral, you cannot be outside. Like, Calgary became functionally unlivable for about a week. Um, and that really stuck with me as like one of those moments of, whoa, we are dangerously close to just extinction at this point. Yeah, actually, um, I'll say that like my own realization moment is pretty similar to that. Um, I think there's something about wildfire smoke that just, it feels like an apocalypse in a way that flooding and stuff like that maybe, or at least the flooding I've experienced in Canada hasn't so far. I remember um, I've done some disaster relief and being in the BC wildfires and being outside and ash was literally raining from the sky. Um, you, you'd go inside and you'd have to dust yourself off. It's uh, for people that aren't from Western Canada or from another area that gets these wildfires. People are stuck indoors for weeks at a time in the summer now and people with asthma or other respiratory illnesses they can't function for certain parts of the summer because it's not safe to go outside anymore. I remember when those fires were happening, my grandmother lives up in Hundred Mile House and they were they were evacuated, but she, like everything she owns her whole life is in this house she's lived in for like 30 years. So she sent her horses away, but she refused to leave her land. Mm. She drove her tractor into like the pond in her backyard to like protect it from the fires. And I'm like, Grandma, why don't you just go? And she's like, hey, <laughs> if I die here, like, so be it. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Certainly that feeling of apocalypse is definitely amplified when like you wake up and it's like nine o'clock in the summer, the sun should be high in the sky. And you're like, it's dark out. And then you open up your blinds completely to be like, Am I at the wrong time? And you just look out and the whole, your whole existence is orange. It's like this apocalyptic color of like, it feels like you're in a Mad Max movie all of a sudden. You're like, this is just normal. Like, this is. Yeah. And like Edmonton's getting so used to it. This is 
the thing that was most fucked up for me because there was a, a record setting uh, air pollution day caused by the wildfires in 2019 in the spring. And I was shocked that people are kind of going on as normal. It was like, okay, you just turn your like headlights on during the day and the radio is playing. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. And yeah. <laughs> that's how we're responding now. I don't know. I haven't been in Canada for a few years, so I haven't been around for the last few really bad wildfires that you guys have been talking about. But I think my own climate terror realization was when I landed in India in February of 2019. And I just saw it was what you were describing, like orange sky and the smog. And it's just millions of people living in Delhi in these conditions all the time. And it upset me a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and air pollution, um, there's the New York Times did a, they created this interactive tool on air pollution levels. And if you look like India is consistently at levels that are as bad as the worst days in, uh, in sort of Western Canada for wildfires, except that one day where it set records that was higher. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just talking about this um uh, in the class talk was that one of the reasons why China is such a big leader on renewable energy and why they get, despite, you know, the constant fear mongering and xenophobia um, that infects a lot of our climate change discourse. One of the reasons why they're investing so much in renewables is because even the elites can't escape um, the air pollution in a lot of major Chinese cities that like for them, they are the ones seeing their children develop crippling asthma. Um, and they know that it's like there is no amount of wealth and, and party connection that can you know, like get me out of this, that can save my kids from this. And so they look at it as an imperative. It's like they need to clean up the air. They need to get off coal um, because even the elites are directly affected. And I think that might actually be one of the reasons why Canada is so slow um, in terms of climate action is that for the most part, our political and economic elite can just leave. They just don't care. The air quality is bad. Well, as soon as the ski season starts to get smaller, maybe we'll see some more action on climate change from the top. Well, it is it is somewhat surprising, though, because Ottawa has been one of the areas that has been most affected by the the senior climatologist for Canada calls it the Americanization of floods in Canada. So like historically, flooding in Canada was a thing that happened because of snowmelt, right? So you'd have if you had too much snow for the like systems to handle, you'd sometimes have some flooding as it melted. Um, but now we're starting to see flooding in urban areas as a result of um, heavy rainfall in the spring. And Ottawa has been one of the places that's been flooding the most. So it is, I think, somewhat surprising because that's right in the back door of where politicians are, right? But as you mentioned, floods don't feel as apocalyptic. That's true. Yeah. Despite the fact that, you know, the Great Flood is one of the great apocalypse narratives of just about every major culture that I've seen. Um, but yeah, it doesn't have the same impact i think maybe today than it it did back way back also am i wrong but isn't it rich people who actually make decisions and not politicians <laughs> <laughs> yeah that way yeah there's that too <laughs> yeah so um, one of the things i wanted to talk about is uh the notion of belief in the climate crisis so there's a book that i was reading recently by uh jonathan saffron for it's called we are the weather and he essentially writes about the psychological difficulty that humans experience in really believing climate science. And what he means by that is that many of us know the climate science, but we don't believe it in a true sense, not enough to really change the way that we're living um, to address the climate crisis in sort of 
like a robust way. And, and one of the threads throughout his book is this question he raises around his grandmother's decision to leave her village as the Holocaust was beginning. And he looks at like her decision versus the decision of family members who stayed and ended up dying. And, and he, he points to this dilemma that all of them had access to the same knowledge, but there must be something different going on when it comes to really believing that a crisis is coming and acting on that. So as we see this happening with the climate crisis, I've been thinking that, you know, we're, we're in the middle of the greatest crisis humanity has ever faced. Um, we know we have a decade to take the radical leaps that we need to prevent runaway climate change. Um, and yet, you know, most people's life, lives more, more or less goes on as normal. And uh, I guess my question is, like, how do we really get people to believe in climate change in that sort of deep-rooted way that we need to? Yeah, this is something that I've definitely been noticing as well. Um, a mutual friend of ours um, has uh, a partner who is a farmer. And we were talking uh, recently about sort of like the weather because he's ha he's been having to dry his grain in a like a dryer every year for the past couple of years. And before the last couple of years, he hadn't had to use it in over a decade. Um, like it was something that he had inherited and, and never used uh, in his like real adult life. Um, and now suddenly it becomes normal. But one of the things that he was commenting on was that like, if you are a farmer, you just sign up for weird weather. Like it is going to be one of the major <laughs> things that prevents you from having consistency in your life. And so it doesn't strike you necessarily as so outlandish that you get spells of weird weather, despite the fact that it is completely ahistorical, despite the fact that we can look at all of the chemistry and the geological data to say that it's like, this is not normal. This is not within the bounds of expected weirdness in weather. Um, but there's still that disconnect of just being like, no, but it's just the weather. It's just weird. It's just going to be weathery things. Um, and I think that that is one of the major barriers, especially like in places like Alberta, where we do get a lot of very strange weather occurrences and very That's outlandish <laughs> weather even years ago. Um, and the older you get, the more experience you have with freak weather and, and stuff like that. And so it doesn't have that same urgency when someone says the weather is changing. Um, and human beings are just very bad at seeing those trend charts. Like it's just not something that our brains have a good capacity for doing. Because we, we remember very specifically the anomalies. So if you, you talk to an old person about climate change, they'll be like, yeah, but we had this really hot summer 30 years ago. And they remember it as this like incredibly hot summer. But if you look at the actual trend data, it was like the 10th hottest summer on record uh, <laughs> over the last 30 years. And the other nine of them have all been in the last 10 years. But those, those more recent hot summers don't have that same emotional impact. Um, and I suspect that it was probably quite similar for a lot of people facing crisis. And so it's just, yeah, it's, it's surmounting that ways that we tell stories about climate change um, and the ways that we tell stories about our own histories. And I think that might also be one of the reasons why young people are far more energized about the climate crisis. Not only are we the ones who are going to have to live through it in a much more tangible capacity, but it's also we have fewer of those anomalous weather events that sort of like prevents us from really understanding the climate crisis as it unfolds. Yeah. And I guess the other side of the coin then is if you do truly believe in the climate crisis, then I think a lot of people are confronted with this immense climate anxiety. Um, and I, I'm just curious, is that something you experience? And if so, how do you deal with it? Um, yeah, that's definitely something that I've experienced. I find finding a community is the only way to deal with it. 
Um, and it's actually created a, an interesting analogy that I like to share now because I used to talk about diversity of tactics and I've since sort of like scrubbed that diversity of tactics has a lot of like weird stuff attached to it. Um, and I've started talking about an ecology of tactics because it gives a lot of good metaphors. Um, and one of the metaphors from ecology that I really like to use is accession. So when an ecosystem is disturbed by fire, landslides, volcanic activity, floods, yada, 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 the community doesn't immediately return to its old composition. So whenever the land is disturbed, you're not going to get like if a forest is demolished, you don't immediately get the same old growth forest growing back. Instead, what you're going to have is like grasses and shrubbery that hold down the soil and refertilize it. And then trees, smaller trees can start to take hold before the bigger trees can come back. And I treat a lot of like climate anxiety in a very similar fashion, because for a lot of people, that sort of like climate wake up call is that traumatic event in the sort of like forest of their own expectations and understanding of the world. Like a wildfire happens in real life and it burns down the sort of like forest of accepted things in their own minds. They are just completely devastated. And so the job of community has to be to be like those first seeds that hold the soil down so it doesn't get all washed away and they descend into nihilism and despair. And you're never going to get someone who's going to be like, oh, I was just mobilized by the climate crisis because my daughter was awake puking because she's asthmatic and couldn't breathe the air and was having a panic attack because of the wildfires. Um, it's very difficult to take someone from that and be like, great, do you want to join me on a bridge protesting for climate change? It's like, no, you have to, you have to plant those seeds of community, make sure that they feel seen and accepted um, and build up their capacity. And so um, I've really enjoyed that metaphor for understanding how, especially with XR that uses a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric about like, you know, <laughs> there is a crisis, we need to deal with it. Um, that is one of the great ways that you can kind of then soften the blow and make sure that that becomes a constructive experience for people. Yeah, I, li I like that, um, especially um, the aspect of sort of like taking climate grief, which we know will happen and and putting channeling it into something productive. It also kind of helps to explain, um, we've had a lot of just like positive interactions with the Quaker community, because the Quakers, based on their history, are kind of no strangers to nonviolence. Um, they're no strangers to the need for uh, civil disobedience um, because of both their religious beliefs and the way that they've been persecuted. So that's just something that they sort of like learn as they grow up in the Quaker community. What is the Quaker community like the oatmeal family or like, what is that? <laughs> uh, no, uh, the Quakers are, I think they're a Christian denomination that like really renounces any kind of violence. Um, and so because they are conscientious objectors, they've been the subjects of state discrimination for quite some time um, because they would refuse to be conscripted. Canada actually has an interesting history of trying to disenfranchise Quakers for their pacifism. But yeah, so it's interesting in like the ecosystem of a Quaker's mind, um, all you need to do is like plant the seeds of the climate crisis is real. Um, you don't need to convince them that like nonviolent direct action is necessary to deal with a crisis. They already know that. But for a lot of people who think that like, oh, the way that you change the world is going to the ballot box or changing your light bulbs and stuff like that. For them, it, it's a much more dramatic crisis when they realize that that's not enough. It's like that's really the sort of like disturbance of their ecosystem. Um, and so it's interesting. You can sort of introduce climate change to people who are used to nonviolent direct action much easier. But it's very difficult to get those kind of like seeds to take root if someone already has a mature idea of how the world works. You really do need that disruptive moment to clear some space for different ideas to make make space. Yeah. So I think we've already um, we've already alluded to the fact that there are different approaches that people advocate for in terms of addressing climate crisis. And 
one of the things that I want to do in this conversation is to sort of pull apart the strengths and drawbacks of relying on personal behavior changes as an element of that. But first, I think we should talk about what personal behavior changes are in the climate crisis. Uh, so about two thirds of global emissions are linked to direct and indirect forms of human consumption. So in theory, at least there's a lot that we can personally do to address the climate crisis. So I guess to just introduce this topic, um, Robbie, is there something that you would say is the single most important personal behavior change someone can make to address climate change? Well, I think we know the answer. <laughs> yeah, you two know the answer. Um, it's almost certainly going vegan. Like the climate impact of meat consumption is just mind boggling. Um, I think one of the most interesting metrics that I saw was they did a life cycle analysis of the Beyond Meat Burger and uh, versus the most like generous possible life cycle analysis that was done by the Ranchers Association of America. So in terms of an organization <laughs> that was going to fudge the numbers and make it look as good as possible, they took the, <laughs> the, the most biased in favor of meat life cycle analysis possible. And it was like 99% less carbon emissions, 98% less water <laughs> use, 97% less land use. Yeah. It's the, the environmental impacts of meat consumption are just absolutely devastating. Um, and that doesn't even include things like wastewater. Um, there's some really great analysis done by Something Burger on, I think, Medium, um, that was looking at the placement of like wastewater for concentrated feedlots and the trillions of gallons of water that was released by hurricanes from these tailings ponds at concentrated feeding operations and the ways that those poison waterways largely that feed, you know, black and marginalized communities in the United States, like not only is meat consumption a climate crisis, it's also like a social justice crisis. Um, and in terms of things that I think every environmentalist should do for the planet uh, is go vegan. Absolutely. And I also just want to say uh, there's a stat that I found recently on the water pollution uh, that in the United States, factory farming has polluted such a distance of rivers that if you connected the rivers and extended them around the earth, it would be about one and a half the circum times the circumference of the earth. So that's how much pollution there is. Not even talking about the climate impacts, but just factory farming is poisoning the waterways. Oh, Kristen, you always have my favorite fun facts. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're never fun. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, you're you're right. I did sort of predict that. It seems it seems like most people who are looking at taking a personal behavior approach to the climate crisis, uh, they say that sort of your first step is moving toward a plant plant based diet. So that could be going fully vegan, and a lot of people say that we will need to get most of the way to that if um, we're truly going to address the climate crisis. But there are suggestions that also say maybe start with being reducitarian or flexitarian, so just oh, eating yeah. meat less. Yeah, and um, just to give people a sense of what that means, um, I saw one suggestion that says uh, a flexitarian diet basically means eating one and a half ounces of meat every day. So uh, that amounts to about three hamburgers worth of meat every week. So if you're looking for a, a metric to go by. Yeah, there was a great uh, TED talk that pointed out that it's like, if your objective is to reduce meat consumption, um, you can either pick a strategy that tries to turn 50% of the population vegan, or you pick a population that has everybody reduce their meat consumption by 50%. And this is the exact same amount of reduction in consumption. Um, so when I say go vegan, I 
obviously like I'm a bit of a, a radical person I've discovered. Um, and so for me, it's like, that's, if you want to maximize your carbon reduction, go vegan. Um, if you want to take constructive steps towards uh, reducing your carbon footprint, do meatless Mondays, then do meatless weekdays. Even switching from like red meat, like steak to chicken has a massive reduction in greenhouse gases, not nearly as much as, you know, cutting out meat entirely, but, you know, changing your consumption habits definitely has a pretty substantial impact on your carbon footprint. There's not really a contradiction for vegans between environment and animal rights because factory farming is just a nightmare overall. But one thing that I do think is interesting is um, if you're taking an environmental approach to reducing meat consumption, then the clear thing to cut out is beef. It's the worst for the environment by a large margin. Um, but if you're taking a cruelty perspective, it's chicken or pork, right? That's where the harm is the most acute. So I just find that really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that people interact with the environmental movement. It's one of the big struggles as well when it's like you're trying to build a movement that is fairly broad in its scope. Um, but yeah, there's lots of different concerns that like different interest groups are going to have very different ideas of how to resolve them. I don't know if we just took an approach where we were making less and people had no choice but to buy less, that would be a huge help. Because I know a lot of people who, when you tell them like, hey, every time you eat a hamburger, you're destroying the planet, they'll double down and they'll go buy another hamburger. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, we're talking about this in the veganism episode, right? That when you're focused on targeting people's saying you should do this, people psychologically do just sort of back into their own corners, whereas focusing on collective solutions tends to be more productive from just the way that humans think. Yeah, like the whole system is broken. We all need help doing this together. Whereas, yeah, if I am like, hey, you suck for eating that cheeseburger, <laughs> which is what I'm saying to myself every time I eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't help. It just makes me feel sad. Yeah, this is actually a really interesting topic. Um, because changing consumption choices is a recognized theory of change. And I love to draw on, I will admit, like Arendt's reading of Marx, because I haven't read enough Marx myself to say that it's actually Marx's view. But the idea that there is a, our interaction with labor is meta metabolic. Labor creates goods that are then consumed and both parts of that need to be working for the cycle to continue. Um, and so the left and progressive movements are very okay with strikes that, you know, pulling back our labor power is recognized as just like this deeply obvious thing to do um, to deal with injustice. But when you switch over to the other side and start talking about ways that we can disrupt consumption as part of that cycle of metabolism, people get kind of weirded out that like they do respond to this idea that, oh, changing your consumption habits isn't enough. But if there's not people demanding a good to be sold, it's not going to be produced by capital. Um, and so boycotts are functionally very effective. Like there is a long history of boycotts being effective. And even within the modern context, there are some boycotts like BDS that people tend to be like, oh, it's yeah, this is good. Boycott, divest, sanction. It's uh, a movement uh, against uh, Palestinian apartheid. Um, yeah. Sorry, just for people who haven't heard. Yeah, no, that's good. Once again, if I use any acronyms that are not common knowledge, please let me know. But yeah, so like that is generally considered to be a good way of using personal choice to affect political change. But when you talk about veganism, people get much more weirded out and don't apply the same thing. Because if you think about veganism, it is just a boycott of meat production is saying we refuse to participate in this industry because it is unjust, cruel and destructive in the same way that other boycotts are developed. And so I think that 
we need to steer away from poo-pooing consumption changes as a theory of change and instead look and say, look, this is a big picture idea. And so from that big picture of consumption habit change, we need to then look at our strategies and what tactics that support it. So yeah, shaming people for eating meat is not a good tactic, but it doesn't invalidate the idea of having people consume less meat as a theory of change for social change. So I think, yeah, there are definitely tactics that we can change in and move around. Because yeah, shaming people for eating meat isn't necessarily going to work because shaming people is never constructive. But providing people with that information, creating a culture that doesn't think of meat as this like essential thing will definitely have massive consumption habit changes. We're even seeing that now where like the dairy industry is floundering because people are switching to plant-based alternatives. And we don't have to do that by shaming people for drinking milk. We can just talk about the health benefits of drinking plant-based milk. We can talk about it by like questioning the ethics um, and just making people think about cows as people instead of cows as like productive units. And all of those things can help as more productive tactics for accomplishing the same strategic objectives. I guess I'm afraid that climate change is happen happening so rapidly that as a whole, I'm worried that we will not change fast enough, which is why I wish the government would step in and help because even I have trouble changing my own consumption choices and I feel like I think about it all the time. And so just the anxiety of knowing that we have so little time and societal change can take so long, especially in regards to eating meat and consuming animal products, I'm like, ah, it's not going to be enough. So I do want to get to that theme. But before we get there, I just want to close out the first, like, what are personal behavior changes for climate theme? Uh, so just to quickly state some other things, because going vegan is one way that you can address the climate crisis. And it's probably the most effective. But there are others. Uh, so another big one is reducing your food waste, right? So throwing out less food, Composting, because if I mean, you, if you guys want to go back to the zero waste episode, we talk about composting um, a little more. But the sort of quick headline is that we throw out a lot of organic material. And if it goes into the landfill, it produces a lot of methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. So that's bad. People also probably have heard lots about how you can drive less, cycle more, walk more, take public transit more. Um, although, of course, that really depends on your life circumstances. You can also reduce, reuse, and recycle, so consuming less um, generally. Uh, for example, in our clothing episode, we talk about fast fashion and how it's fucking up the planet, so that's one way you can consume less. Um, and then there are lots of ways that you can improve your in-home energy, energy efficiency, like using LED lights, using the dryer less, getting smart thermostats, having better insulation. And then the last one that I want us to talk about maybe a little bit is the question about having kids in the climate crisis. A lot of people worry about this for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is there's sort of a, a question around, do you want to raise children in a world that's going to look a lot worse in a generation than it does today? And the other side being that producing more humans results in more consumption. And some people are concerned about that. So I'm just curious if you have thoughts on the question of becoming a parent in the climate change era. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things that is a common thread talking to people about climate change. I think that it has a lot of really dangerous undercurrents. Like one of the major criticisms that I consider to be valid for veganism is that it's just like, 
there are a lot of elements of cultural imperialism around the food that people consume. That for a large part of human history, like the way that we have tried to destroy minorities is literally by starving them and cutting off their food supply. Like in Canada, there's a long history of attempts of genocide by killing off major food animals and poisoning water and land. So one of the major criticisms that I think is valid from a lot of vegan activism is the way that it overlaps with that kind of history. And when we start talking about birth strikes, that's even more like fucked um, from a history of the ways that we've tried to impose this on people. Because a lot of it also comes down to the same overpopulation mythology that is deeply rooted in eugenics and white supremacy. Um, there's a great summary of this by Andre Domiz uh, in Maclean's, uh, where he talks about sort of like the racist history of overpopulation myths. Because one of the, the problems that I have with people who are like, oh, I don't want to produce kids because they're consumers. It's like 90% of lifestyle consumption comes from a very small segment of the population. So if you are an average everyday person, your child, assuming they also are going to be an average everyday person, because social mobility is mostly a lie in 2020, um, which is a whole other issue, um, <laughs> they are not going to be the serious contributors to climate change. Um, in the same way that it's like, we don't have to worry about population growth in Africa and India and China because their per capita emissions are so small and unlikely to increase in a world that is increasingly moving towards renewable energy. That if we are concerned with overpopulation, um, we're really concerned with overconsumption by a very small group of people. But you never see that. You never see people who are scared about population and demographics talking about guillotining the rich, who are the major reasons why um, we have a climate crisis. They talk instead about, you know, sterilizing vast segments of the underclasses of the of the world and like preventing them from breeding. And that's super dangerous and very toxic and really does show that this is not really a concern over consumption, but rather a more general concern that has gone back for ages of, you know, population changes and demographics as they relate to changes in social order rather than an actual climate crisis. So I have this conversation quite a lot with climate activists because, you know, it it seems like it should make sense. More people consumes more, hurts the planet more. But it really doesn't actually make sense. And when you start to look at the history, it's just one of those things that I don't think that the environmental movement should talk about. I, I don't think it should be part of our sort of like ecology of tactics, just because it is so abhorrent in the way that it's been deployed in, in its past, and even in its present. Um, so I'm never going to tell someone, no, you must have children, because um, that's also weird. Um, but it's just like, I do try to talk to people to sort of alleviate that anxiety around having kids, um, especially from like a consumption point of view. I think it is valid for people to start to think that it's like, do I want to have kids if I don't think that it is ethical to bring them into the world? Um, I don't know how to respond to that. That, you know, that's not something that I can really help assuage for someone other than um, we need to use that as a bullying tactic. That it's like for a lot of young people who have parents who are climate deniers, I think that it is quite clever to just be like, you're not getting grandkids unless we solve the climate crisis. I think that that is like a, a really fun way to try and leverage that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't think that birth strikes are necessarily a good thing for the movement to support in any tangible way, even if it is a personal choice that I think some people are going to make. Yeah. So uh, Kyla, maybe we'll go back to the theme you raised now, which is basically what's wrong with fighting the climate change the climate crisis with personal behavior. Do you want to say a little bit more about what you were saying before? I mean, I feel like I covered it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I feel like, I just feel so powerless. And I feel like every small choice I make isn't enough, especially as somebody who does work in 
I work in a bookstore sometimes. Like, that's one of my many jobs. Millennial. That I see. <laughs> Yay for the gig economy. Uh, and, some of the, and so just I see on a regular basis um, upper middle class people coming into this store. It's a very it's in a very well-to-do neighborhood. And just every single person wants a bag and, and they're plastic. And every single person is upset that they don't have we don't have paper sleeves for the gift cards anymore. And, you know, a lot of people are upset that the gift cards are made out of cardboard instead of plastic now. And it's just it just feels like there's there's more people who don't care than there are people that do care. And in order to help the people who don't care care, we need more government help. That's how I feel about it. Maybe I'm wrong. Please help me. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, I just got a, a quick quote I want to say that really, um, I, I thought it was a really good articulation of this. Um, and this is from We Are the Weather as well. He says, it's a shame that instead of having a minority of climate atheists, we have a majority of climate agnostics. And I think that's so true. Yeah, I like that. To respond to that question, again, this comes back to how we create tactics around consumption changes. Because I think that ultimately, we need to be building communities around these changes. That one of the ways that we make consumption habit changes less effective is by trying to individualize and atomize them. Instead of saying, no, this is this makes you part of a community um, and to engage in these kinds of like sustainable behaviors as a community project, rather than just seeing it as our own our own things. Um, that also helps deal with that sort of like direct anxiety of dealing with climate agnostics and climate deniers, is that if in your daily life you are constantly surrounded by climate deniers, you're going to have a much more despairing and angst-filled position than someone like me who almost never interacts with climate deniers in his daily life and only interacts with other climate radicals. Um, and so I think one of the great ways to be sort of alleviate that anxiety and then also build up resistance structures and, you know, more resilient ways of dealing with the climate crisis is by finding those communities. If you are concerned about the climate, um, make sure that you are getting yourself into spaces with other people that are also concerned. Because otherwise, yeah, it's just going to drive you absolutely crazy. Um, because you're not going to be able to see the change makers. You're not going to be able to see the changes if you are constantly surrounded by the people who have no desire to make change. Um, so I think that's one way that we do it is by creating those sort of community aspects. And it's also, I guess, being in Alberta, I just have a very low expectation for the government to do anything. Um, like even the left wing parties, as far as I'm concerned, are completely useless. Uh, I just called the NDP a scab party today. It's the Canada's Social Democratic Party for um, non-Canadian listeners. Uh, <laughs> Social Democrat. They're the neoliberal party with uh, a different slogan. And unfortunately, they are as far left as Alberta goes. <laughs> it's also really funny because the conservative right-wing party frequently maligns Extinction Rebellion as a bunch of NDP operatives and agents. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so... <laughs> One of the things that I've been like harping on quite a lot recently is this idea that democracy does not live in legislatures. Uh, it does not start and end at ballot boxes. One of the reasons that I like to focus on community building and community engagement um, is because we need to start building real parallel structures to our democratic institutions as they exist, because it's the only way we're going to actually be able to hold them accountable. Um, so I've been telling people that it's like democracy exists every time that multiple people get together. Um, that we need to start treating our communities as vibrant political areas. Because and this links back to one of Extinction Rebellion's demands to go beyond politics. And when I first joined up, this was the one that like rankled me the most. 
um, because I, you know, as people who know me will know, like I come from a very like bureaucratic, technocratic background. Like we know each other through debate as a very like party politics centered way of thinking about the world. Uh, and it took me a while to realize the profound limitations of party politics and to really see this idea of going beyond politics for what it is, is creating a democracy that is fit for purpose, that actually represents people rather than special interest groups that can capture parties or their own like cowardice about getting reelected and having real vibrant participatory democracies is going to be necessary for changing the climate crisis. And in addition to being a community thing, that's also a personal choice and personal habits change is to stop seeing yourself as just like a private citizen who moves through public spaces in a private way. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I really love protests and rallies is because it changes how we interact with public spaces generally. Like when you are a, a motorist on the road, you think you are using a public space in a very private way in your own personal little steel box. But even when we go to somewhere like the legislature grounds or a public square, if we're going there to go on a run or spend time with our family, we're again in these public spaces in private ways. And we transport that into our democracy, this like public good that we treat in a very private fashion. It's just like my vote is my vote. Um, I vote for a party. I don't deal with democracy in any other way. But when we do a protest, when we get 2000 people to seize a road, when we fill the legislature with a vibrant community that is all there for the same purpose, we change how people interact with those public spaces. They stop seeing themselves as private citizens in public spaces and start seeing them as public in public places. And I think that's one of the really valuable ways that getting out to a protest helps to move people towards a better like way of understanding the world. Because yeah, we're never gonna we're not, we're not gonna change the government's mind with a protest. We're not going to really affect change by having a rally and holding signs and chanting. We are going to change by, you know, changing how our communities see themselves so that they're more willing to hold politicians to account. So even in terms of how we create government action, still requires those like personal changes in habits and personal changes in how we view the world, because you need to get out of that like atomized individualist mindset, because that's what allows political parties to run ramshot over public opinion. That like it doesn't matter how popular something is, if they can count on people to not be mobilized to care about it, they're not going to do anything. So like, this is how the Conservative Party manages to hold massive majorities in rural areas of Canada, despite the fact that they shit on farmers all the time, um, is because the farmers view themselves as these like homesteading individuals. Um, and so it's really easy for the government to just ignore their concerns. But if the farmers went back to like the CCF days and started to become really like radical farmers unions, uh, the CCF was an old political party in Canada. I was like, I don't remember what that stands for, but... <laughs> It was sort of like the it, it it really was just sort of like farmers unionizing and standing up and forming a political community based on farming concerns. And yeah, it's if we have stuff like that, that actually holds politicians to account um, in a way that our own private belonging to a political party or our own private political personalities will never do. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about let's say there's a listener that's interested in being more involved in these kinds of collective responses, but they're really uncomfortable with the idea of showing up at a protest, what would you say to them? And what are some sort of first steps they could make to get more comfortable? Um, yeah, so there are a lot of organizations that don't do like even Extinction Rebellion doesn't just do protests. 
So I think that's one of the barriers that we can actually help to remove as organizations is to be like, yeah, you can be a part of our organizations. You can come to meetings and do like smaller actions and community stuff that doesn't involve like doing a big protest that doesn't involve blocking critical infrastructure or anything like that um, is that, you know, to just sort of let yourself moderate your own engagement that, you know, when you join these groups, no one is going to force you to do anything against your own will. That's against our principles of nonviolence. And so you can show up and you can be a casual member. You can just come for the community. But there are also lots of other organizations that are much less radical. Like there are a lot of different sustainability issue initiatives. I know them in Edmonton because I live here. But regardless of where you live, there are a lot of communities built around sustainable living um, that you can join that don't involve doing protests. And just joining those and finding people who are like-minded um, is going to make a huge difference for being able to understand your own capacity. Because that's the other thing, going back to that sort of accession analogy that I talked about earlier in, in the cast, is that, yeah, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect people to come into organizations and suddenly be mature activists. Um, you really need to create spaces where people can ramp up their own involvement and discover their own capacity and like create spaces for people to have that sort of first experiences of going to a rally, first experiences of going to a protest. Um, then first experiences with doing something disruptive. Because like, even for me, where I am now, like I'm talking as this sort of like, radical who does like crazy stuff, like blocking bridges and train lines. Um, that's not how I started. Uh, it's not as though, you know, my first engagement with Extinction Rebellion was blocking the bridge. I started much earlier, just showing up to rallies, holding a sign. And that was that was what I thought my capacity was. That was what I thought was a good way of doing things. And it wasn't until I had that experience of doing it that I realized, oh, this is actually not that extreme. I have the capacity to do much more. Um, so it's really just like taking that first step to put your toe in the water, knowing that that is totally okay, that no one expects you to to go and immediately be, you know, repelling off of bridges or other stuff like Greenpeace level stunts, like um, just getting involved and getting a start. Yeah. And the other thing I think is um, for the people that are willing to do the more radical stuff, I think people that are not ready for that, you'd be surprised how much the people that are willing to take more radical steps are really appreciative of people that show up in solidarity. That's something that you hear a lot from, because especially I, um, it seems like protesters that are willing to get arrested tend to be tend to be older because there's less of a, a personal risk to them from from arrests. You know, not being able to leave the country has less of an effect and things like that. Um, but um, standing there in solidarity or being at a mass climate rally, that helps in a meaningful way. And you're not going to be judged for not being comfortable to take those stronger steps. Oh, yeah. And even for something like when we blocked the Walterdale Bridge, there were eight of us on that bridge. And there were about 20 or 30 people that were providing material support to us who, you know, were never in the public eye, who were never going to be arrested. But they were out there, like, making sure that we were putting up signs, that we were handing out cookies and water to motorists who were stranded, um, that they were back home on social media, moderating the live feed. Like, there are so many ways that you can get involved that don't require putting yourself in harm's way. When we did that rail blockade as well, like, there were about 20 or 30 of us that actually, like, set up the blockade. And then there were, like, honestly, hundreds of people who drove by and dropped off supplies and provided support and, like, stayed. I think one of the most heartwarming moments was a working mother came by on her way to work, and she had her, like, two-year-old infant in the back. 
and uh, rolled down the window and we all like did the high fives with her child and she gave us muffins. And it was like, that was one of the most meaningful things that happened in the entire blockade for me. Um, and it had nothing to do with my like blocking critical infrastructure and stopping a train. It was entirely just like those moments of support of knowing that there's a community behind us that might not be able to get involved because like, yeah, she couldn't get arrested. She has a, a small child to take care of and like needs to be able to go to work to, to take care of that kid. But hey, she can still show up. And that's more meaningful than a lot of the people who joined us on that blockade uh, to get arrested. Yeah. And I think the other thing is there are certain rallies that are more um, that are meant for mass participation and are meant to be less risky. So typically the Fridays for Future climate strikes tend to be that kind. And so if you're thinking about, I'd like to attend a climate rally, but I'm not that comfortable, uh, going to the climate strikes is a really good way to get out there. Um, they're often very family focused. Uh, a lot of the times they'll even have sort of like kid friendly activities like collective mural making. So um, that can be a way to get involved. One thing that Edmonton does, um, I don't know how common it is in other cities, is also to do just like eco grief circles. Um, so this isn't even necessarily doing any kind of activism or any kind of public change, but literally just coming into a room with other people who are scared about the climate crisis and talking about it. Um, it's actually been quite powerful to see how people have been able to to navigate their anxiety around the climate crisis just by getting around people who have also done the same thing, who are on the same journey. Um, so in terms of like ways that you can get involved and for organizations that don't provide this, that are looking for ways to like bring in new members and help their communities – Eco-grief circles and counseling is a great way to do it. Just to sort of switch um, our, our themes a little bit back to what collective action solutions might look at, I want to sort of talk about the different approaches that people have come up with for um, how we can get these sorts of like systemic changes. And, and one, of the, one of the ideas that people have talked about a lot is um, drawing on wartime rationing as a as an example. Um, so Bill McKibben has basically said, I'll, I'll quote him, it's not that global warming is like a world war, it is a world war and we're losing. And so people that sort of want to take that approach, sometimes it's just sort of a rhetorical thing. But in other cases, they they're talking actually about either extraordinary um, marshalling extraordinary public investment, building solar panels, wind farms, electrified public transit, tree planting, that sort of thing. And in other cases, it's actually rationing our consumption um, in a mandatory way. Uh, and I was just curious to hear um, your thoughts on the benefits and drawbacks of that kind of an approach. Yeah, I actually, I really like the rhetoric around like a mobilization on like a World War II scale. In part because I think that it is an interesting um, historical analogy that doesn't have quite as many problems as the New Deal. Like one of the most interesting criticisms of New Deal style terminology was that the original New Deal was actually like super racist um, and did a lot of really sketchy stuff. Um, and so it does have like a bit of a troubling history when we talk about a Green New Deal that doesn't necessarily have the same consequences when you talk about like massive total war mobilization. Though, again, going back to there is not a government in the world that is in a state that it can actually do that. That before we can start using that rhetoric, that very much has to inform our strategy for how we change government to get to that place. Because we can't use that rhetoric as like, this is what is necessary and nothing but this will work. 
because we are not there. Like we need to build the conditions for a World War II level mobilization to exist um, before we can start really depending on that level of rhetoric. I'll also plug another podcast that is wonderful, uh, the Alberta Advantage. They did a wonderful episode on sort of like the ways that public companies were gutted after World War II. They're like the amazing things that Canadian industry did as part of World War II mobilization that was subsequently sold off and privatized and disappeared almost entirely. I think that that is also useful for giving context because for a lot of people, the idea of a massive um, state-run mobilization of resources is totally alien. That for someone like me who has grown up in 30 years of neoliberal austerity and like privatization, the idea that governments can do something like that is still kind of mystifying. Um, and so I think that, yeah, using that rhetoric and trying to remind people of that history of mass industrial action and mobilization is really useful just for stretching people's imaginations to think of what is possible. Uh, because, yeah, we can mobilize an immense amount of resources when we take it away from the capitalists who are enriching themselves and put it towards like an actual genuine social good. Um, in case you haven't noticed, um, the real answer to the climate crisis is socialism. Isn't that something that that's a famous Margaret Thatcher quote, too, isn't it? Um, I, I can't remember what the quote is exactly, but she essentially said that climate change was a pathway to socialism. And that in some senses is perhaps one reason that con the conservatist movement has such a, an issue with climate change. Uh, the other being profit, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely dangerous as well, because like, that's what a lot of these consumption based problems get down to is that it's like when you parse out the data and you look at it, the average person contributes so little to the climate crisis that trying to depend upon average people making average different choices is really missing that the vast majority of what's causing the climate crisis is not the average people. I think this actually is also interesting in terms of like flight guilt. If you look at it, um, flying emissions are basically follow the Pareto principle to a T. Like 80% of emissions are produced by 20% of flyers who take more than six flights per year. So if you are an average person, um, I know a lot of people that have been like, I can't go on vacation because uh, I don't want to produce the CO2 from flying. But it's like, you can take a flight per year. You are not the problem. The problem is the people who are flying for business, for instance, that are flying, you know, three or four times a month. And as a result of that are just producing massive amounts of emissions. And those are the majority of flights is people who travel all the time and depend upon air travel as part of their like day-to-day -day commute or people who just have enough money that they are flying all the time, that they take a private jet instead of a bus or a car to go from like Edmonton to Calgary. Well, and also it, the class that you're in on a flight matters too, right? You're taking up business class or taking a private jet has a higher emissions total than if you're in, you know, cattle car economy like I would be when I'm on a flight. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, I think that's one of the things that we also need to be thinking about when we're talking about how do we mobilize individual consumption choices is very much to say that it's like, you should make this change. And it's good that you're making this change. How can we help you realize the magnitude of difference um, in your consumption habits versus someone who is 10 times richer than you and how their consumption habits are affecting the world? And how do we, you know, talk about those kinds of issues? Because yeah, it part of that mass mobilization also has to be for a more just economy. One of the things that the Green New Deal does very well in terms of how it discusses the climate crisis is the fact that for a lot of people, the precariousness of their position is one of the things that blocks them from doing anything about the climate. 
their debt, their inability to find stable work. All of these things prevent them from really engaging in their communities in a meaningful sense and therefore being able to address the climate crisis as a community. So we need to have a fairer economy. We need to make sure that people are actually able to get involved in their communities before we can expect them to be doing community work. Robbie, just for people who haven't heard of the Green New Deal before, because I think that might be some of our listeners, could you just explain what it is? Yeah, so a Green New Deal is this idea following off of the historical Green New Deal that was a response to the Depression, which basically said the economy is rigged against the average everyday person. And so we need a massive redistribution of wealth to sort of make equality of opportunity reality for people again. Um, and so that was the original foundation of the Green New Deal, was massive infrastructure projects, make work projects, higher taxes. And a Green New Deal follows a very similar structure, is saying that one of the reasons why we are facing a climate crisis is because there is a vast inequality of opportunity for people. The best way to do that is that we need to tax the rich so that we can build up all of these community resilience and sustainable living models that are simply not accessible to people right now because they don't have choices in how they consume. They can only buy the cheapest things. They can only buy um, the cheapest food. And so as a result of that, they don't have the ability to make sense, like they don't have the ability to make these choices to live in a saner, more sustainable world. Um, and until they have the resources to do so, they won't be able to do so. So the answer very much is we need to have a, a fairer economy it also matters a lot because like one of the serious concerns about climate justice is like, what happens to all the oil and gas workers? And the answer to that is, well, in the current status quo, what happens to the oil and gas workers is the same thing that happened to the Welsh coal miners, um, bringing up Margaret Thatcher um, and her evil, disastrous legacy, um, which is that without a Green New Deal, without a just transition, oil will end. Like we will either run out of it or global opinion will shift in such a way and global demand will shift in such a way that we simply don't need it as much anymore. And the industry or we're all dead. will end. Yeah, or <laughs> yeah. we're all dead. Uh, one of the two. And so it's like, if we don't have a just transition, if we don't have a plan for what to do after oil, then what happens to all those oil and gas workers? They're all laid off. They have no options. They have no alternatives. They have no choices. So that's also part of like the Green New Deal and just transition is looking at like, what do we do when this is over? Um, and how do we make sure that we don't leave people behind? And that's been a big part as well as a, a big selling point of a Green New Deal is trying to address the anxiety and precarity of oil and gas workers. Because, you know, anyone who has worked in oil and gas knows it's a boom and bust industry. So that's one of the big selling points for just transition in a Green New Deal is saying, hey, better work is possible. <laughs> That's why it's so bonkers to me that oils and oil and gas workers are so like against all of this. I'm like, you guys are the ones who need it the most. Well, it's because I think they've been sold a, a political climate where none of our political parties are ambitious enough to actually spend any money to save their jobs, right? As long as we're in the framework of a neoliberal approach to climate, yeah, you're not going to be able to get oil workers on board because they want to be able to have that good middle class life, you know, like my, my dad has worked on a refinery for most of his life. Um, and he doesn't deny climate change. Um, so like, that's, that's great. Um, but I understand where his anxiety comes from, right? Because he knows this current provincial or federal government, if we transition away from fossil fuels, they're not going to get him a new job, right? Like, so I can understand where that anxiety comes from. 
I do um, dunk on the NDP a lot, but there was actually a very effective part of their coal transition strategy in terms of doing just transition for workers. And the NDP government was actually investing quite a bit of money in making sure that after coal mines and coal power generating plants were being closed down in rural Alberta, that they were actually investing massively in transitioning those workers. It's just, it was a pilot project. It only closed down a few coal facilities before the UCP axed it. Yeah, the UCP is the conservative government that's now in power in Alberta. And so that is also one of the things that makes workers less trusting in terms of a just transition is that they've seen governments flip-flop on shit. Like in Ontario, Doug Ford's conservative party closing down wind power generating plants that were under construction out of spite and malice. Well, that's why Doug Ford does what he does. <laughs> yes. Um, but like all of that contributes to this atmosphere of people don't trust a just transition. They don't trust their governments. And in large part, it's because no one participates. Like no one holds them accountable for doing that kind of stuff. And so that's why we need to build those parallel democratic structures, build up communities that can hold their governments to account. Because otherwise, yeah, we can't trust the government either. <laughs> well, I think that that goes to... A question that I think a lot of people have in their minds, um, especially around elections and climate change, right? Um, so in the last Canadian federal election, a lot of people took the decision to strategically vote for a party that was not a climate denier party, but also wasn't promoting a Green New Deal um, because they felt that they were more likely to get elected. So what would you say to somebody that's trying to make that kind of a, a decision? So I was always someone who supported strategic voting, who lived in like NDP majority ridings and never had to actually do a strategic vote. Um, <laughs> and this was the first election that I've lived in a riding that was contested. And I did not vote strategically. Um, and in part, that was because fuck Trudeau. Uh, and he, <laughs> he had the opportunity to make me never have to strategic vote again. Uh, the liberals had a mandate to do electoral reform that they did not use. And instead, he was a rat coward and did not lead and failed uh, everyone who voted liberal with the expectation of never having to strategically vote ever again. This was for people that haven't heard of this. The Liberal Party promised to bring in proportional representation and they reneged on that promise. So I was just like, I refuse to be held hostage by the Liberal Party for another election. Um, they promised that it would be the last election ever held under first past the post. They broke that promise and... I can no longer conscionably tell people to vote strategically. I do not think that the liberals provide an actual left-wing alternative. That if someone has, if someone cares about the climate crisis, if someone cares about, you know, having a fair and just society, there is not a strategic option. There is the NDP, who are not even all that great, and nothing. Well, there is the Greens, to their credit, their platform this election actually was very robust on climate. Not that they are really likely to form government. I voted Green because <laughs> fuck strategic voting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the Greens, I have so many other interesting thoughts on the Green Party. <laughs> Maybe for another episode. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll do another episode on uh, my issues with the Greens. <laughs> but this, this does get me to like a broader question that I have, right? We've talked about the drawbacks of personal behavior changes, that there isn't, like, really isn't a lot we can do that most of the personal behavior changes are from like a small group of elites. We've talked about the political problems, right? That there's really 
no party that's actually promoting a solution um, and the, the politics that we have right now isn't a way to solve it. So it seems like that points to the fact that we need to have a transformation in the kind of politics that we're undertaking. But at the same time, we have 10 years until runaway climate change happens and there's nothing we can do to, to stop it. So exactly. That's what I was like freaking out about earlier. Yeah. What, what do we do? Yeah. So this is a conversation that has to come up way more is just so, like people don't realize the power that they have. One of the things that I think is very interesting in terms of how we can utilize personal consumption changes from a tactical perspective is using them as that gateway towards a greater change and a greater shift in their perspectives is that it's like when you tell someone to do composting to help the environment, that is something that is very easy and very doable that allows them to sort of like get involved in all of the thinking. It gets them more invested in the movement without actually really requiring them to make a huge shift in their life. But once they've taken that first step, they're then better able to create greater changes both in their own lives as well as in what they consider to be possible for their political and physical communities. And so I think that we have an interesting tactical opportunity there to use those sort of like small personal consumption habits as gateways into greater activism. Because this is the issue when we, we sort of like get into this paralysis of we need a revolution um, in order to solve the climate crisis, which is kind of the conclusion that I think you were alluding to, Kristen. But it's the question of how do you build a revolution? Um, you, you don't build it by going out into the streets with your newspaper saying, we must have a revolution. Please buy my newspaper. Um, you, you build a revolution by building a revolutionary capacity, by building a public conscience around, uh, some kind of community that doesn't exist yet. I think that that's where personal changes really do have the potential to make a huge difference is just in terms of that, getting people in the door, making sure that they start learning about the crisis from people who are friendly, um, from communities that they can feel engaged in. Because, yeah, people are not going to be effective advocates for the climate if they are on their own, if they are out there in the wilderness of neoliberal capitalism. Uh, they are just not going to have the resources and support that they need. One of the, the cool ideas within Extinction Rebellion is the idea behind regenerative culture. And um, the way that I've sort of like learned about it is through permaculture analogies, that when you are designing a permaculture agricultural plot, um, you need to be thinking about what are the needs for all of the plants that you're going to be placing there? What do they need to prosper? What do they need to grow? And then what kind of things are they going to yield, both in terms of what you can eat from them, but also what they're going to be giving to other members of that plant community. And you can treat people in a lot of the same way. That It's like you need to be conscious of identifying what are your needs as a person and what is your capacity to give back? And how do we use our communities to feed those needs and how do we structure our communities in such a way that you are able to actually like come out and give those things that you are capable of giving? You don't know that until they're in the door. You don't know that until they're actually like part of your community. Um, and so to get them there, if you can get them there by telling them how to compost, if you can get them there by changing their waste habits, if you can get them there by changing their eating habits, whatever you can do to get them into the door and get them into your community, that's what you need to do first before you can start growing up that capacity for something bigger. So it sounds like, uh, in a nutshell, what you're asking people to do is to join communities for the climate. I don't know if you if you want to give the to give listeners a more sort of specific takeaway than that, or if just joining communities is um, the right way to do it. And 
and there are lots of different approaches they can take. Yeah, so I think that that is that is the like the immediate takeaway. I think one of the things that I've really been trying to repeat as often as I can is one thing that I mentioned I think earlier in the podcast actually already um, is that democracy does not start and end at the ballot box. It does not reside solely in legislative assemblies. Democracy is every time we get together as people and as communities, we are participating in democracy. When we remember that, when we recognize that our politics happen everywhere, every day, all the time, and we start to think about ourselves as political beings rather than thinking of ourselves as isolated individuals, that's where we start to create the preconditions for actual change. Uh, When we see each other as parts of communities that overlap and intersect and oppose each other sometimes, that's how we create the possibility for change, that we need to get away from this idea that we vote for a political party once every four years, and that's that's politics, and that's the sum total of what we do politically. Uh, I think there needs to be a greater engagement with the idea that everything we do is political, and that's that's what happens when you join a community. That's what happens when you surround yourself with people, and that's what's necessary to change governments. That's what's necessary to address the climate crisis. Do you have anything else that you want to plug, Robbie? Get involved with wet, sweat, and solidarity movements in your community. Um, it is absolutely critical that we protect indigenous sovereignty as part of the climate crisis and just being decent people. The Canadian government cannot be allowed to invade sovereign territory for any reason, let alone more fossil fuel-based projects. I think, yeah, between Extinction Rebellion, Wet Sweat and Solidarity, um, and just look up, there's lots of different climate movements. Uh, Climate Justice, I think, has chapters all over the place. Uh, 350.org and Our Time are both wonderful organizations. Find stuff in your community. It's going to be different everywhere you go. Yeah. And if in April the Wet'suwet'en stuff has been solved, hopefully, then there will be other solidarity movements you can join for sure. There always is because the government is a mess. So, And actually, uh, sorry, my fire alarm just ended. So I can add uh, April is when we'll be releasing this podcast. And that is the global month of action for the climate. So there should be lots of stuff going on in your communities for climate activities. Check out the Fridays for Future Climate Strikes if that hasn't already happened in your community by the time we release this. Earth Day, there's also usually a lot going on. Um, And that is the 22nd of April this year. Awesome. So I guess to wrap us up, I would like to say a big thank you to Robbie, who we've shouted out before on the show. I don't know if uh, Kristen (laughs) told you or if you listened to that episode, but Kristen gave you a thank you in our Veganuary episode Ah. for helping her with her... Yeah, for uh, helping me with all the sources. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for joining us. And uh, we're going to say goodbye. Uh, I hope that there's some really good takeaways from this episode. I'm going to look at making some changes myself I think (laughs) thanks guys 